the marked body. The entire contemporary history of the body is the history of its demarcation, the networks of marks and signs that have since covered it, divided it up, annihilated its difference and its radical ambivalence in order to organize it into a structural material for sign exchange, equal to the sphere of objects, to resolve its playful virtuality and its symbolic exchange, not to be confused with sexuality, into sexuality as a determining agency, a phallic agency entirely organized around the fetishization of the phallus as the general equivalent. In this sense, the body is under the sign of sexuality as it is currently understood, that is, under the sign of its liberation, caught up at a process whose functioning and strategy themselves derive from political economics. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started today on Chapter 4 of Symbolic Exchange and Death by Jean Baudrillard, just want to let you guys know we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Send us a buck a month. Koopa, did you like this chapter as much as I did? This is like the first chapter where I've I've actually told you like, (laughs) Yes. Ah, I like this. Now, Actually, it's funny. I don't think so. I think there was a lot of cool or interesting threads that he kind of brings up, but he still is, is still like the tank, yeah, right? It, he's still not, he's still exactly. not going for the G spot, you know? Right. Yeah. I would have liked uh, a little bit more of the denouement in terms of where he was going. Yeah. The, the crescendo is, is still to come. It seems not to yeah. pun. You know, it's funny that inscribing of the body, you know, something we focused a lot in our last episode for anti-Oedipus. So it's kind of interesting that we're sticking on that terrain. You know, you you brought it up right before we uh, took our break. Baudrillard, at the end of the book, at the end of the chapter, he talks about this X inscription of the death drive. And it's kind of, I think, in my view, if I'm reading correctly, which I never claim to be, (laughs) (laughs) this is like a vibing thing we do. This is almost like meditative and we, we try to like, figure this shit out. I'm wondering if warding off castration, the phallic alibis is the same kind of move or, or is in tandem with this move of warding off the death drive. Do you get that same kind of feel with what, I know Bodger didn't talk as much about the death drive as he did about the phallic alibis and these kind of things, but I'm wondering if our denial of castration is also with I mean, specifically, he's kind of in lockstep with Foucault here in terms of how sexual liberation can't be just only thought of as like happy-go-lucky, carefree. It comes with these other types of, whether it be repressive or negative offsets. He yeah. talks about it as repressive desublimation, which we, <laughs> again, kind of talked about with, with Daniel last time. 
I'm wondering if that's the same kind of warding off of the, the death drive and warding off of castration. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I wasn't. No, I, I, just, I, I didn't yeah. quite. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite get exactly what he meant by or how like the do you think this uh, discussion of death drive being inscribed on the body is one that that's a very fascinating topic, even if I don't quite get what, what he like yeah. i kind of you know what i mean i i understand enough to sort of know that okay this is an interesting idea what i got was with the sexual liberation movement of the it's classically identified with the 60s but in 76 it was probably still kind of yeah like the kind of free love upswing, idea right and it's upswing what i kind of got from baudrillard was that with sexual liberation and he's always kind of putting it in scare quotes and stuff you have this move from sexual ambivalence to sexual equivalence, which is why he talks about the secondary body of sexual emancipation. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to understand because Bocher has been saying this for a couple chapters. Now, the more that society liberates woman, mm-hmm. the more sex becomes you know, equivalent one another, which I, you know, I guess that's kind of his way of saying the, the Lacanian, you know, there is no sexual relation. Yeah. Or that yeah, like, he definitely, well, he definitely, does he directly do this or am I just confusing this from reading the Laplanche about, because I feel like Freud says this too, a little bit. It's not a big point, but about what the, the liberation of woman more. So your point about the non-relation. Yeah. I mean, I think with Freud, which I guess goes to that whole idea of castration and the yeah the girl supposedly is <coughs> ignorant of the vagina. This is Laplanche. Yes, Laplanche is is kind of saying one of the things Freud's taken a task by a task for by um, I don't know if it's Melanie Klein or if it's some some of his other feminine readers is this notion that it's all lack on the feminine side of the spectrum, right? It's all the little girl starts to hate her mother because her mother is the one that deprived her of the penis, which she wants. And that's why her father becomes the loved object at a certain stage at the phallic stage in development, right before puberty or around that time, the father becomes the loved object because the father not only supposedly has, has the phallus, but can impregnate her and give her a phallic substitute. An, mm-hmm. an alibi in, in, in Baudrillard's term. And the child would be the presumed be alibi. The, yeah, there's this interesting equation that Freud always makes between like penis, feces, child equals, right, yeah. this, <laughs> equals money. Yeah. Right? You know, all those things become, this is the metonymic slip that Baudrillard's is, talking about. That, that is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is kind of interesting in the sense of reproduction production yes libidinal economics yeah yeah it's, it's political economy and libidinal economy. i mean we talked a bit about that i don't know it was always weird that he was thinking the babies were shit out or something the childhood theories of sexuality okay of reproduction is that before we go on i didn't even finish my thought but yes you're yeah, right the, the no no i'm sorry the feminine readers of freud the the feminist readers of freud fault him for not thinking of the vagina as a positivity. Yeah. You know, just because it's a whole, just because it's a whole doesn't necessarily mean it's metaphysically a lack. You know what I'm saying? 
Right. Anyway, and Freud's smart enough biologically and scientifically to, to, to say that the the girl, the, the feminine clitoris is the equivalent of the penis. He's smart enough to know that analogously, mm-hmm. right, that they are equal. But at the same time, they are unequal symbolically. Does that make sense? Right. Biologically, they're equal, but symbolically, they're not. Yeah. And Freud's actually got it the other way around, right? That that we're all kind of born with the clitoris. It's just that our uh, uh, yeah, our, yeah, our yeah. crazy what is it? The Y chromosome. Thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you guys have seen the show. I'm saying you guys, like I'm talking to the audience. You but also, but also you, Coop. Um, Ewins. The FX show, The Last Man. Have you heard of the show? Why the Last Man? It's just called The Last Man, and um, it's on FX. Are you sure it's not Why the Last Man? Because there's a comic book, Why the Last Man, that just got uh, turned it's, it's into a show. It's based on the comic book. It's based on the comic book. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But the, the Y is the Y chromosome. Right. So in The Last Man or Why the Last Man, basically, there's some apocalyptic event. We don't know yet in the... I'm sure, you know, you're a fucking comic book nerd, so you might already know. Don't yeah, spoil I've, it for us. Don't spoil it for us. But there's there's some kind of event where all of the Y chromosome... Mammals, animals, or or is it just mammals? Pretty sure it's mammals, but it could be. It's been a while since I read the the books. Let's just say mammals. All the Y chromosome mammals die. We are the weaker sex, right? I was thinking about some of your posts about um, you had the the cheeky Mao quote, the women. Oh, women hold up half the guys. Half the guys, yeah. So anyway, this kind of metonymic slippage, this equivalence between the the penis the uh the child the feces money the childhood theories of sexuality in the childhood theories of sexuality the child thinks or at least one of the theories is that their feces is like giving birth they have enough kind of whether it be intuitive understanding or whether it be I hate to say that they've like seen their mother giving birth, but maybe that's possible. Maybe they've seen a younger sibling, hmm. but they, they make the leap that first they have a, like a cloaca theory, right? They don't, they don't really understand vagina penis, but they do understand anality, right? Because they've, they've shit. Right. They don't, they don't yet understand that the other is marked or unmarked based on the phallus or based on the penis, you know, and, that kind of I think that kind of information is part of facing castration is part of the fetishism that the essay itself, right, that Baudrillard is working through the the last one of Freud's theses is like you see your mom naked somehow or she's undressing or whatever the fuck. And the last thing you see before you see the absence of the penis is that becomes boom linked in your mind that becomes the fetish somehow. It doesn't have to be really the object. It's just in your mind, the metonymic veil, you put that veil over castration. You disavow it, right? You know that it's there, but you also hide it from yourself, right? You're able to play kind of doublespeak. And so the fetish is sometimes it's the foot, right? The foot's the last thing you saw before you saw the lack of the penis, of the mother's penis, right? The, you know, the garter, Baudrillard goes through a list of it. So does Freud, kind of, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I thought this was cool, too, how the belts and things yeah. that bracelets, obviously, mm-hmm. choker, obviously, choker is like a more graphic example of what he's getting at or more like 
you know, sizzly is example of how these little objects can, or other ways of marking the body. And I think, especially in terms of seduction, you remember the meme of the hyper ass, which I think is kind of funny in this context. Are you talking about your meme of the yoga pants? Well, I, I didn't make, I didn't make it. Somebody okay. else did, but I think it definitely has a lot of relevance for this whole discussion because of sort of the prohibition or whatever associated with, you know what I mean? With the anus? No, the I would say just associated with, it's almost like the, there's something more, I don't know. It's like the yoga pant or whatever tights or whatever is almost more, the intensity of the desire is more than even the naked body. Yeah. Perhaps. It exceeds even the, the nude body as sex object because of the sort of striptease. Like there is a certain element of striptease to it, yes. right? It's gesturing towards a nudity, but it's not. And it's like the sort of, I guess, symbolic, right? Is you have to wear clothes, but this is a way to, the sort of messes with that whole yeah thing, right? You're, you're, you're covering over the kind of, the hyper parts that you're right. talking about, but you also emphasize them at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. Double yeah. move, right? It's like think of like a corset. Yeah. Or the ways and all the different ways of emphasizing the breasts. I'll sort of, I guess, out myself here is that I like it in winter whenever women are more covered up. Typically, there's something about a sweater or something and the line of the the curves of the woman's body that gotcha, yeah. are alluring in a way that the nude body, obviously there's, you know, there's a sexual charge to it, right? Or there's an intensity, but there's something about the, yeah, it's kind of like the strip tease. Like it's not quite, it's gesturing towards, but it's not quite, it's like leaving that extra little, there's something to do with surplus. Do you think it's partly in there? Do you think it's partly imaginary, not like right? Right. Sense, I mean, it's a in, well in the sense of which you fill in the blanks. Right, right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It even does sort of go into Lacan's. It's almost like okay, true, the, that's true. The way that the hyper ass functions is that it's more sexually charged than even the naked body. I think that that makes sense, Bill Hicks. Because Bill. yeah, because of the separation between the bard, the sort of the sort of Caesarian bar kind of crap that Baudrillard and Lacan get into, right? If what is beneath the bar is hidden, quote unquote, that's for us to imagine and interpret. Right. Yeah, exactly. If, if what is signified is beneath, then yeah, that makes sense. It's even a good example of how desire sort of functions for Lacan, at least for a certain definition of like, yeah, right. Your sort of fantasy of the object yeah, yeah. never quite reaches the actual object. So I think that is a good example maybe a way to think about why yoga pants, tights, et cetera, are so. See, and yeah. I don't know if you have this response to them. Well, I think this is very like Heideggerian Lacan because it's, yeah. to me, it's more about the veiling and the unveiling, right? Of truth in the sense of Aletheia is about an unveiling. It's about a revealing. I think it's actually, if you take Lacan and everything you said, it's actually not even about lack, right? It's not like there's something lacking. It's actually an abundance, there's something that needs to be unveiled that is productive, as you said, of desire. It's the surplus value. There's something more in what's being hidden in the yep. negation of right, right. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. nudity than it's not like a lack, right? It's it's more about veiling and unveiling. It's the plus minus, which hmm. Lacan talks about in terms of the symbolic. Freud talks about in terms of the phallus, right? It's the minus isn't a, even a lack, right? There's something 
extra there. I mean, that's how Bergson and kind of Heidegger read negation. You know, you, you go into your car, you turn the key and the car doesn't start. There's not a lack there. There actually is a surplus and it forces one to think consciousness comes into being at that moment of the expected, the anticipated turning of the block. And so when you say nothing's there or like it's not working, there's actually more there because you have to figure out a problem. Now there's a problem. Now there's a problem to solve. Now there's, so this is kind of how Bergson talks about negativity is that like, there's actually more there in our common understanding of negativity. There's the thing plus consciousness plus a problem. So there's a lot more there. I think that's the same thing with what you're talking about. There's the surplus in the, the dress. And yeah, um, I have a good way to take it back to more Baudrillard would be it really, and I think specifically like this kind of meme of the hyper ass is the map exceeds the territory. Yeah, that's interesting. The charge of the of that sort of more sexual, more sexy than the nudity. Yeah, there's a, like a covering up is more sexy than a, a nudity. Here in Austin, there's a we have Barton Springs Pool where it's a spring-fed pool. Well, in Austin, you can go topless. You can even do this on Sixth Street, but you see this a lot. You go to the pool, and there will be like maybe two or three women that that are topless. It's almost like I don't want that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like it puts me in an awkward position of I don't want to stare. I don't even want to necessarily look because I, you know, I may not be. I'm my not modesty. To, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to be have my desire messed with. Yeah. Unless I want to, you know, so it's like, yeah, that's actually good. That's, that's kind of, I don't want to be reminded of my castration or something. Well, that's, almost, that's, right? a, that's, that's one way to put it. Uh, Bojard also talks about the, if the striptease were merely about this erotic spectacle mm-hmm. and not this autoerotic self-seduction that he's talking about, if it merely were about the other's gaze, then it would go as fast as possible. Right. You just, boom, you, you wouldn't tease it. Yeah. There would be no teasing. It would just be, Bam, here's my tits, here's my cooch, right. here's my ass. And this reminds me very much of what Freud says in uh, the three essays on sexuality, when he shows that Victorian prudence, that we are all perverts from the start, right? Yeah. He shows that with the infant, polymorphously perverse, but he also shows that in the normal adult when he says, why in Western society do we fetishize kissing? That's weird. Right. The mouth is a part of the gastrointestinal system. It is connected with eating. Why are we kissing each other on the mouth? For Freud, if you take Victorian ideals and morals seriously, to not be perverted, you you jam the penis in as quickly as possible and you get it out as quickly as possible. Any lingering on the neck, on the mouth, on the foot, on whatever fetish is perverted. And so the fact as he shows the fact that we have all these ways of stimulating that are not connected to the general organs directly means that we're all fucking perverts. Right. That's just undeniable. And that kind of simple, and this was part, I think of his early period when he's really trying to shock minds into taking psychoanalysis seriously, that kind of insight where he's like, yeah, you're all fucking perverts. You can be all high and mighty, but well, there's the meme going around about the Mormons and the soaking, right? You've seen that, right? No, I haven't. So I just learned this. Dear audience, if you haven't heard about this, <laughs> soaking is this act whereby Mormon youths, the male inserts the penis, but there's no movement because it's the motion that 
consciously caused by an ego gets you in trouble. If you just insert the penis and you don't move voluntarily, then you're not violating some kind of laws. And so added to soaking is where you soak your dick in the vagina, you don't move. And then like you're on a bunk bed and somebody else bounces the bed to cause an external movement. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know what that's called. So you're still not violating the principle because it's not your fault. <laughs> this is why Nietzsche it's is like so- a Rube Goldberg machine. For, oh, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is why Nietzsche's uh, notions about the metaphysics of the hangman and about the ego as cause. All of that metaphysics is fucking stupid because the meme that I saw was that uh, God is like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, right, where he he only senses motion. If you don't move, then uh. he doesn't he doesn't see <laughs> he doesn't see the sin. Uh, so, oh my God. So you can see how then this whole metaphysics of causality is ridiculous. And this is why, like, I'll say it again, because it always struck me as a child and it always scared the shit out of me. You know, when Jesus says you have lust in your heart, that's the sin. The sin isn't necessarily the act. Yeah. The sin is in the, in the desire. The prohibition is what creates the desire or something, right? Well. Or is that Freud or I don't know. I'm not. I think Freud Lacan probably doesn't take that so seriously, but Freud is reading this guy named Sir, I think his name is Sir Gregory Fraser. He wrote a book called The Golden Bow. It's about, it's something like that, but it's about this, it's this whole interpretation of ancient culture and mythology. Interesting. And it was very influential, you know, kind of like, let's look it up, look it up for me. Um, Well, I was thinking, same book I'm thinking of, the reason I know of this book is because it's in Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah, there you go. It's one of uh, Kurtz's books that he has clearly displayed. So uh, the golden bell, you can see that it's probably not associated with good things then, because it it encapsulates a lot of Western biases, let's just say. And one of the biases is that and uh, anti-Oedipus, they actually bring up Frazier. I don't know if you remember this. They fault Freud for agreeing with Frazier and saying, oh, of course, what was desired was what was prohibited. Of course, uh, I wanted to fuck my mother. That's why it's prohibited. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I definitely like remember they, that. Deleuze and Guattari are critiquing that at the heart, that they, you know, as, you, as you've seen them say, <clears throat> the prohibition, the first thing it wants to do is to disfigure and to discredit what is desired and to displace it. I think that that insight is very important for their reading of Freud and their, I would say, correcting of Freud. It's the same thing as what Freud does with, with the penis. And this is part of Baudrillard. When Baudrillard is attacking real, a, a realism and a naturalism, it's the fact that Lacan is very clear. When he talks about the phallus, he doesn't mean the male member. He doesn't mean the penis. Yeah. Freud is, is too caught up because whether it be his 19th century Austrian Victorian ideals or the state of science, blah, blah, blah. He's too caught up in this dialogue with biology and with really what you would call a biologism. You know what I'm saying? He's too caught up in this natural sciences discourse because he wants psychoanalysis to be taken seriously. He wants it to be treated as a science. And even though when he's honest, he says, look, we don't know the source of the drive. That's biology's province. He still wants to speculate on biological grounds. So he talks about the penis. He doesn't really talk about the phallus that much. You saw that maybe in the Laplanche. 
he talks about the phallic stage. He uses the adjective phallic, right. but he doesn't often use the word phallus. And even when he does, he doesn't, it's almost like he's being, how do you say, polite. Instead of saying penis, instead of saying cock, he's saying phallus to be almost like he slips into a polite mode because he's a, he's a doctor and he's also, he's thinking about these things. What's going to, what's going to trigger my patients? What's going to trigger the audience? So phallus for him is like a, is like a even more, how do you say, sterilized word, but Freud is always talking about the penis. So he does the same thing when he thinks of the girl's penis envy. And he literally thinks that the, the little girl is angry at the mother for not having a penis. She sees that like the mother, she's also castrated. She blames the mother for not having the penis. And that's why she desires the father, blah, 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 blah. For Freud, that kind of, he has a naturalistic interpretation of the absence. And so he makes it biological. And mm -hmm. that's the same kind of mistake he makes with desire. When he says, oh, it was prohibited. You wanted to fuck your mother. Well, that's why it's prohibited. You wanted a penis, right? But that's not what the desire is actually linked to. And, and I think Lacan makes a big step forward when he says like, no, you're both castrated. It may be asymmetrical. And of course, Blues and Guattari have their own because Freud too sees it as asymmetrical. But for Lacan, I think it's asymmetrical symbolically. Yeah. For Freud, it's asymmetrical biological. biologically, at least based on a biological metaphor. Right. And I think that Lacan takes takes the takes a step forward. I just think, you know, you, you see Deleuze like late in his life. He's like, Jesus Christ, all this shit about castration. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, like that's honestly, I think how he feels. I'm not sure how Guattari feels about it, if he has the same kind of impatience. But I think that's what Deleuze would say about this chapter is Jesus Christ. Oh, the phallic alibis. Shut the fuck up, OJR. You know, I'm not sure. I actually found uh, his stuff about castration here very convincing, though, and not as tiresome, you know, as when like Freud talks about it as this inevitable universal stage, you know. Did you talk about how this ties to symbolic exchange? Well, fucking Bocher didn't really talk about how it, I mean, like, he did, but he, he like he throws it in there. Right. This is why this chapter is not a denouement. Right. This is not a crescendo. Right. Yeah. Is, it's like a middle chapter or something. The, I mean, the only way that I understand it is somehow the body, you know, it's gone from this overt repression to this liberation, which is a what he calls a repressive desublimation. Yeah. Right? It's okay. like, OK, I you like can that. use your body and and and, you know, enjoy it's an right. ethics of yeah. enjoyment. And, it's like and I the think super egoic injunction. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. This is why he's very close to Lacan here, where he's like, Yeah, which is like a tyrannical <clears throat> desire. Yes. And he, he has the footnote, I think it's like footnote 10 or 15, where it's about the the second person plural, the y'all of advertisement. Yeah, it's 15. It is the the super egoic injunction, enjoy. You know, enjoy Coke. Right. Whatever, so know. it's not a liberation. It's a it's a simulated liberation because on the reverse, like it's sort of like the, at the level of consciousness. Right. It's operating on this mode of liberated flows. But I on the that, converse, it's yeah. very at least in the kind of Baudrillardian sense, it's coded in the sense that you must in this binary logic of. But I don't know exactly how to tie that to symbolic exchange. Well, but he, I do I think it's kind of cool that the binary coding and the possession of the phallus 
and castration, like the one and the zero, the possession, the non-possession, et cetera, and how that involves itself with code. It's not, and you know, it's still a bit opaque, I think. With Bojard, why I'm not convinced he really did the legwork in linking this all to symbolic exchange. What he wants to say is he always seems to be wanting to say, we've moved from this mode of ambivalence of signs to equivalence of signs. Haha, ha, that's very much like exchange value and political economy, the abstract equivalence of money. And what I what I like about Leotar is that with Leotar, you never get the sense where he you never question that he's thinking we have to go back. We have to reverse things. You never feel that with Leotard. Yeah. With Baudrillard, I always, I always have this itch where it's like, are you, I love the critique of sexual liberation. Yeah. You're very much in line with what Foucault's talking about in the history of sexuality volume one. I feel you on this. Are you trying to go back? Do you want to go back? Do you even have the pretense to think we can go back? I feel that that's, that's what I feel with Baudrillard. And I don't, I don't even know if, I don't think it's nostalgia. We always talk about this. We have to do it once an episode. I wonder if it is more, if he's like Leotard and he's like, okay, we have to go further. There's only, the only way out is through. But with Baudrillard, it feels like he's got something of the, I don't know if it's the penitent or the self-flagellating, you know, monk. I, I'm not sure what Baudrillard is trying to say or what, what his, his vibe feels like. We have to go further, but we are cursed. You know, it's it yeah, always, that, it, and I think that is really more. You think so, that's it? Yeah, I do, I do think so. Whether or not in this specific text, I could see perhaps him being <laughs> this a bit more in that mindset of being sort of having this unconscious nostalgia. But I think certainly later on, he becomes you know even more cynical. I think in terms of yeah, our ability for to do to change any of it and to sort of not mourn that exactly but just to, it's more like yeah you're you're sort of trapped and there's nothing you can do yeah 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 don't resent it nevertheless that's the thing that i think that i i sense and i'm i'm trying to be charitable which that so. kind of goes to the nietzsche the nietzsche right was it twilight of the idols where it's something about right mourning the the loss of the real world yeah or, yeah that there's a or like you can only something about when I don't know you talked about this about criticizing the world while being in it criticizing life criticizing life right yeah like when you ascribe a value to life that's for Nietzsche a red flag you obviously can't judge it after you're dead when you're outside of life as he says but when you're within life you can't judge it for other reasons mm-hmm. you're already biased your valuation of life is itself a symptom of a certain type of life. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's kind of what I, when I read Baudrillard, I get my psychologist in Nietzsche's sense, right? My symptomatologist kind of comes to the fore and is like, what kind of valuations is Baudrillard giving us? And I think he, he does all these, he, he's doing this striptease himself in this text and it's very seductive. And it's like, obviously you're trying to seduce yourself. Obviously you're, trying to become your own phallic alibi. I don't think he's a neo-reactionary where he thinks sexual liberation bad, let's repress women, let's, you know, less freedom is good. I don't think he's saying that. I don't either. I think he's more so critiquing, he's making a a point towards the illusory, the simulated liberty of the decoded flow almost. Like the decoded sexuality still has its own 
negation or something or sublimation. It's sort of a trick. It's like a no. You're, which I you're guess would it. go still go back to that critique that you know you just mentioned relative to Twilight of the Idols. Well, it's just this. It's kind of a thirst for annihilation vibe, but right, yeah. But it seems like he's giving us the annihilation and warning us against the thirst. Yeah, right. It it, it is this kind of pull out method. You know what I'm saying? Like it is this kind of edging, edging on the void. And he wants us to look in, but he doesn't want us to like jump in. I don't know. I, this is what you wanted. You wanted wokeness. Look at what happens, right? Ooh, that's look at what happens when you when everybody's woke and everybody's sexually liberated. You know, like for him, we're just all we're doing is the symbolic exchange, the ambivalence of the signs as they become more and more equivalent amongst yes. themselves. Ooh. You know, he's I think he's wanting us to like face that. Yeah. Ooh, and great. And that's why he analyzes, again, the striptease as the self-seduction where it's, it is precisely, as you said, it's, it's the viewer's castration, but it's also the, it's the dancer's own hypnotic self-seduction, hypnotic, uh, hip, it's the self-hypnosis that she herself is castrated, but she can for a moment, if she's good enough. Mimic the phallus, yeah. She can, yeah, right. She can mime whether it be having the phallus or performing the phallus and thereby not only delude us, but also delude herself in being self-sufficient, being phallic, et cetera. All that is, this is why I think the notion of phallic alibi in Baudrillard, I felt like, you know, in this text, I feel like he says the word alibi a lot, but he really doesn't. Yeah. But this notion of a phallic alibi is, is very like key. I think it's a key concept that he doesn't, all of his concepts, he doesn't spend enough time. He's not going to do what I want him to do. He's not going to be like phallic alibi. This is what this means. Even when he gives us these definitions, you know what I mean? Like even when he's primary narcissism, secondary narcissism, tertiary, his definitions are bullshit. They're not, I don't take them seriously. I think even then, especially then, maybe even most then, is he trying to seduce us and kind of trick us into... Could be, yeah. That would be consistent with his character, I think. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think he follows a logic necessarily. And I think that's... He would say, I can't follow a logic. I'm following the logic of capitalism. I'm following the logic of, you know, political economy of equivalence. Everything is... What's the word? Um, when we are equivocal, all that means is we're lying, right? When we're equivocal, we're just bullshit. We're bullshitting. Yeah. That's all equivocating means, right? You are yeah. everything equals everything else. So this is like, this is why I don't think Derrida says this, but he might as well. This is why if you want to understand postmodernism, and I'm now ascribing postmodernism <laughs> to Baudrillard, you know, Pache Baudrillard, sorry. I mean it in the broadest sense, because there's obviously several postmodernisms. There's postmodernism in art and literature, not even really in philosophy, but more so in like the linguistic contamination of yeah. Philosophy. Semio-capital. Yeah, or semi-urgy, as he calls it, right? To understand postmodernism, I think you have to go back to the pre-Socratics. You have to go back yeah. to the sophists. Right. Not necessarily just the pre-Socratics, but the sophists. Interesting. You have to go back. I think Badu maybe he's oversimplifies things, but he's very clear when he's like, the philosopher and the sophist are the same thing, and that mirror image is what the philosopher can't stand. Yeah. The philosopher is the one who takes a stand and wagers on truth. Whereas the sophist is trying to teach you how to, I mean, some of them like 
some of the sophists are just trying to teach you how to win an argument, how to win like a legal battle and make the weaker argument strong. And that's what Socrates, for example, can't stand. This is why Badu and Socrates are like simpatico. Mm. It can't stand that the weaker argument can be made the stronger. That sounds like Nick Land too, like we're talking about evolution, mm. right? Oh, yeah, with the with the tell the audience about the the tweet. Nick Land retweeted a video of a nanobot that took a quote unquote lazy sperm and it picks up the sperm and it actually takes it into the egg to fertilize the egg. And Nick Land says this is the the advent of dysgenics, I guess, in a more intense way. That's basically what he said. Yeah. And so I guess we don't know that it is dysgenic. All we know in terms of this is like common sense knowledge is that, yeah. quote unquote, lazy sperm, the sperm that is not teleologically geared for the egg and, right. and, and, and its motility is lower, blah, blah, blah. We're using all of these physicalist assumptions right. yes, that exactly. this sperm is worse. Yeah, it's That's why it's dysgenic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I think just that that, I mean, that underscores this whole idea of or this attachment to strength and power as the primary tools for fitness, evolution or fitness to the milieu. Right. But it's not even if you're not looking at it in that sense, I always think about it this relative to disability politics. It's sort of like you're as a quote unquote able bodied or what full, you know, the, obviously there's a lot of, you know, baggage on the outside of this, but just to communicate it, how do you know that someone else's fitness, you know what I mean? You're making a judgment on based on what? Oh yeah. It's, you know, it's back to it, Nietzsche. It's it could be like the most weak, you know, physically weak person. They offer something, they offer a different perspective. Yeah. Just, you can't just wholesale devalue the weak quote unquote as not having anything to to contribute to whatever that kind of you're right it, it's an ableism but it's also it's a weird ableism projected onto the level of the molecular and the, on, on the sperm yeah, yeah exactly i mean there, there's obviously a reason why you look at sperm counts in terms of like seminal fluid you, you talk about a whole it's a fucking crowd of sperm yeah it's a pack Right. It's a whole, I mean, like the Lizaguatri and the Thousand are great on this notion of the swarm, on the, the hive, on the pack. So it seems meaningless to pinpoint weakness or to make a valuation on one sperm, on one spermazoid. Right. Which that, is that only seems, half. It seems of completely the... meaningless. Yeah. And as you said, it's only half. Who knows? I mean, like already, as we said it with the last man, all, you know, the Y chromosome is already the weaker you know, sex, right? I mean, in terms of, and if we want to stick to biology, there are biological ways in which this is true. They make better snipers because they have better hand, uh, hand-eye coordination. They have better eyesight. They have better- Higher pain tolerance. And that's because they're biologically equipped to have children, exactly. right? It's just that culturally- Right, yeah, exactly. And the symbolic- Statistically, sure. culturally, the feminine are- this gets us to uh, Baudrillard and, and like the question of the political economy of the sign, right? Because in terms of the level of the sign, females statistically in the West are still kind of programmed to be, right. you could say, nurturing, like to be, mother, to be nurturing mother or to be the beautiful doll. Mm-hmm. I love the example of the, I don't know if you saw this footnote, where he quotes this little girl. She's given a doll and the doll is manufactured to be able to pee. Mm-hmm. And the doll's like, my little sister can pee. Can you give me a real doll? 
And I, I love that. I think that that's yeah. very, it's again, it gets us back to this question, like on the biological level. And this is, I think why Nick Land is, it's just more boomerism when right. he's calling this one sperm. Dystrenic, yeah. I mean, I would even say that the scientific implementation of this is, I would question that and I see why he's doing it, but what he extrapolates from it and where he wants to, you know, put it within this worldview of, you know, this kind of this quasi Nietzschean worldview of how the weak beat the strong. It's only quasi Nietzschean because for Nietzsche, that dialectic already is itself inherently interesting to him. Mm -hmm. And why, why the, the weak beat the strong? Because they need to be clever, right? They have, you can't just, unless you really need to be clever, unless you really need to like overcome, you're not going to. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's the same with the pressure of diamonds and shit like that. Right. Where he tells us to become hard, which is just funny, you know, for phallic reasons, right. We're talking about phallic alibis, but when he tells us to become hard, he's, he's wanting us to face those difficulties and overcome those obstacles, not just in an ableist way, but part of that can be easily interpreted in terms of ableism. I mean, that's the problem with Nietzsche, right? Is that it's so, I mean, this is why Nietzsche is can red pill and black pill so quickly because a little, a little dose of Nietzsche, a little bit of Nietzsche is going to, you're going to become a diehard fascist or something. And so the remedy is a lot more Nietzsche, right? A lot more context. It's probably the same with Baudrillard, right? I mean, you know, um, a little bit of Baudrillard. Yeah, I could see how it would kind of fuck you up. Like, <laughs> Man, fuck. Why are we still on this fucking rock? This is, a, this is, I think, part of our dynamic, right? Where you're like, fucking blow it all up. I'm like, yeah. come on, man. I'm still having fun. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll just keep buying like one day, one more day off of you. Like a Lucy cigarette. I'll gladly blow up the world tomorrow for a world today. No, what I loved about kind of the the whole dysgenics conversation is I haven't thought about it enough to know, you know, I'm not sure how much I advocate for it, but I am sympathetic or and open to that the proclamation that if nature is cruel, change nature. Yeah, you, you, which I, I think I, is the spirit of this this nanobot, right? In a sense, that helps uh, procreation. But I mean, again, it's only cruel in a statistical way. Nietzsche quotes Kant. Nietzsche points out through Kant's mouth or has Kant say nature doesn't care about individuals. Nature mm -hmm. cares about species. Nature is concerned about the reproduction of the species. Right. Doesn't, yes. give, doesn't give a shit about anyone. Individually. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So even this, which I think, see, this is where capitalism, I think that capitalism has this too. It doesn't give a fuck about individuals. Oh no. The way, no. and I've said this capitalism is more collectivist than than communism or socialism because socialism actually cares even though in a sense it doesn't care about the individual it cares about individual workers capitalism doesn't give a shit about what the individual believes right it doesn't it doesn't give a shit about arguing its point of view mm -hmm. now obviously there are people that on the right wing who are going to spout whatever reactionary ideological regimes points that they're under Mm -hmm. And we have those in capitalism. That's not what I'm really saying. What I'm saying is like capitalism doesn't try to say, this is what Leotard says. Uh, capitalism doesn't say, here's why I, I am powerful, why I, I'm still in charge. Capitalism doesn't care about making these arguments that it very well could. Would that be sort of in the way that the sovereign does for Foucault? 
through the you know the whole torturous element of what the regime does to the body of the one who transgresses the law of this of the sovereign right it has to make a spectacle of of this no i like that i mean this is foucault like reading hobbes or someone like that right well i I mean just going back to that whole you know the famous opening was it history of uh madness or well, remember the Foucault is, book, but right, you know, civilization that, is we the all know of it. the famous Foucault, like one of the books that opens up with the discussion of the torture of the individual, right? That's discipline and punish. Okay, discipline and punish. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. But I know what you're talking about with the with the quartering and all the ideological justifications for capitalism isn't worried about making that type of no oppressive institution, which goes to that idea of sort of false liberation or the meme liberation of free love or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is good. This is connecting it back. Yeah, you're right. Um, capitalism doesn't find sexual liberation to be a threat. Right. I mean, as, exactly. as, as Baudrillard I mean, it's decoding, so, it's decoding the flows. Right. I mean, for and for Baudrillard, it's it's actually like implementing the code, right? Yeah. Because it's because <laughs> right. it's because it's moving further along the logic of equivalence, right? Yes. This this kind of structural law of political economy is now becoming enmeshed in libidinal economy. And yeah. so for capitalism, that only can signify a, uh, a positive. And this is why I think when I said Baudrillard is very close to Foucault here, when, when he's warning about sexual liberation as being emancipatory, right? You're emancipating the body, but really you're just instilling this new ethics of pleasure and desire, which yeah. is everything capitalism wants. Exactly. I think that this is why Deleuze and Guattari, when they talk about the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine and the art machine all kind of working in tandem, you haven't heard a word in 200, well, what, we've read 150 pages now, 180, trying to remember. You haven't heard a single word about them saying like more pleasure, more desire, more sex. Right. None of that shit. Yeah. They could have easily been saying that in 72. They should oh, have been sure. saying that in 72. If they wanted what, to be woke, they wanted to be like. What about Reich in the relationship to this? Because wasn't he sort of a proponent of a sort of at least. And I'm, you know, I'm just talking because I, I haven't read Reich, but I feel like tangentially, at least it's fallen. that he sort of had a role in the, I guess, popularizing the notion of free love in America. Yeah, this is Tom McGowan's really good on this in his um, in the opening that's probably where I read it then. Yeah, yeah. I in, just forgot. In, in the opening of the book that we didn't really discuss with him. Sorry, uh, Todd. <laughs> Capitalism we, we, desire. We, we kind uh, of discussed it, but around it, you know? Right, yeah. That's how I justify it. Hopefully he's, if you're listening, Todd, we love you. Todd McGowan makes this very good point about how the Frankfurt School and with Reich, and he he he, he apportioned some of this critique to Liz and Guattari, although I, I would disagree with him on that point. But with Reich, it's about how, and he sounds very Baudrillard pilled here when he's like, <laughs> Reich is kind of saying, what if we just, what if we lifted some of the repressions mm-hmm. from the system, from the libidinal system, for example, sexual liberation? This is where Deleuze and Guattari, sometimes when they start to speak about a less repressive regime, et cetera, I kind of feel like I always remind myself of what Tom McGowan is saying. Right. Is how capitalism, he basically says, he doesn't say this, but he basically says capitalism doesn't give a shit about more or less repression. That's a false battle. Yeah. 
whatever will yes. propagate <laughs> the flows. I so think that do, yeah. I think that with the Lewis and Guattari talk about less repression, and they say that they actually do use that phrase a few times in Anti Oedipus. I don't think they're talking about the the same regime as Todd is. When, when Todd is criticizing the free love stuff, like with Reich, and about less repression, he's attacking that on the grounds of capitalism. I think when Deleuze and Guattari are talking about less repression, I don't think they're only talking about capitalism. I think they're right. also concerned with schizophrenia. Yeah. I mean, literally, they're also concerned with the whether it be the disabled body or the the institutionalized body, the oh, um. The penitentiary body. Mm-hmm. I think that this is where they are very aligned with Foucault because Foucault too is 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 wary, just like Baudrillard here. He's wary of this kind of myth of well, if we just have more lift all the repressions. Yeah, yeah, if we just lift repressions a little bit and let the libidos flow, we it's not so simple. And it's that's yeah, it's and, not and just it, accelerate the process of well, that's a different. But I mean, there is a sort of a accelerationary element to. The removal of repression, right? Or you could uh, hear uh, the the word kind of like unleashing the flows of desire, right? De- that, I mean, there's a sort of similar thing going on. I think. I think that what what Baudrillard does shows very well in this chapter is desublimation, which is kind of what Reich is talking about, and what Deleuze and Guattari themselves even they they put it they call into question the whole notion of sublimation and desublimation. Because sublimation for Freud is this is how we get along with everybody else in society. We sublimate our sexual desires and we get with the program. This is why you produce. This is why he says humanity has produced like great works of art. How even like language and culture comes about is we desublimate. We're not fucking each other on the sidewalk every five seconds, right? Which is part of your thing about sweaters. Desublimation, though, it does refer to kind of the sexual liberation stuff. Right where we disinhibit, we lift the some of the repressions on sexuality, and God knows that they needed to be. I mean, right? We we understand, but at the same time, there also are probably good reasons for why there are some strictures and circumspections about sexuality, especially still when we're living in an age where abstinence is still one of the fucking keywords for sexual reproduction. We still live in this world. I mean, you live in Texas. I don't have to say anything about that, <laughs> right? We still live in this world where people are punished for their sexuality. So it's probably a good thing that we haven't decelerated fully. It wouldn't be possible, right, in the medical regime we're under. Anyway, my point being is what Baudrillard uses, the notion of repressive desublimation. It sounds counterintuitive and contradictory, but it works into this logic that we're talking about. You lift the repressions on sexual desire, so everybody gets the desire more freely, more pleasure, more sex, more whatever, and that feeds into capitalism, right? That feeds into this notion of a consumer society where we are... Um, I mentioned the last anti-Oedipus episode yeah. about dating apps, right? I mean, that's an expression of this binary logic the flattening out of this into market exchange. Left, right. Sexuality. Yeah, exactly. The binary yeah. of that. Yeah. And I think that that's what Todd McGowan was getting at a little bit with critiquing the Frankfurt school and, um, and Reich and et cetera, is this notion that on capitalism's field, mm-hmm. less repression is seemingly now there may be like a curve and an asymptote, but seemingly yeah. less repression is, is a good thing. Right. Specifically when we're talking, yeah, yeah. Let desire go and do what it does. Did you have any more that you wanted to discuss on, on this sort of train? I was going to discuss sort of one of my fetishes and see, how, 
and see how this Look. rolls with kind of um, castration, etc. Sort of like Schraber, but not exactly. Schraber fantasized about experiencing basically se- sex as a woman, so like experiencing sexual or penetration, right? Being fucked, yeah, like a woman. Right. Yeah. My fetish is to be is to be, I guess, desired or fetishized the way that a man fetishizes a woman by a woman. So to be like, yes, pure, you want to be objectified and objectified. Into a sexual object. And, yes, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's that's my fantasy. Do you think that it's a nature of the feminine desire to like conceal that type of objectification? And like, yeah, if, I think if you wanted the, that. Yeah, right. I think within the, yeah within the symbolic that women are not supposed to display desire. To, they're not supposed to objectify right. a man. There's a kind of prohibition still to this day, right? Women are not supposed to objectify like a man's, a man's body is less objectified than a, than a woman's. Right. I, I would agree with that. I mean, even uh, like, uh, at least sexually, at least sexually, right. there are yeah, other yeah. objectifications of male bodies that I suppose. Um, yeah. That, that, like in, that are, yeah. Like in terms of strength or the Olymp- strength, you know what I mean? Competition. Especially when you talk about a certain type of ableism where it's interesting, right? That a certain, if you think about an overweight, an obese male and woman, they both get kind of shit on in certain ways, but it's asymmetrical again. Right. Right. For women, it's partly what you're talking about. It's about this notion of being desirable, except on one side where you have the big mama. That sometimes is acceptable. If you're not in those parameters, though, you can easily get kind of reverse sexism or you know sexism in the your shame for not being sexually objectifiable as easily right uh, okay. for not falling okay. within those parameters of what's uh, okay. desirable i mean right, there right. are obviously guys that yeah yeah fetishize, fetishize. with guys you know within certain limits it's kind of okay to be big at the same time you can get to a point where that's just as much able to be mocked and it's right. it's seemingly okay. mocked from the other side where it's like it's not that oh you're not sexually objectifiable it's like you're you're lazy you're you won't be a good provider whatever you could have all these values associated with it anyway yes so you i think that i i don't know if baudrillard i think he makes a passing reference to like the male striptease but he like kind of dismisses it as silly i i may be i may be projecting into the text but you know, that would be the one that'd be like one key example where it's like you're at a bachelor party. Right. You're expected. It's expected to. Yeah. The repression to sublimate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't care if you like me for my mind or whatever. No, just like me for being an object. Desire me as an object. That's attractive to me or that's I guess libidinally charged. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that we we get into these relationships with people and. We assume that we are sexually desired and desirable, but it's a different thing to like, not even just say it, but to like really, really mean it and like mm-hmm. articulate it. You know what I'm saying? Like when yeah. you, when you actually feel desired, when you believe it, when you feel it from the other person, yeah, I think yeah. that that's, that's so important. It's, it's so important to like share that when we, when we have those, those moments. Right. And a lot of times we don't because we're kind of socially programmed to think that that kind of, I don't know if it's that kind of intimacy or that kind of honesty is embarrassing or 
Or maybe you try not to articulate it because now you're out of the moment. You're trying to like crystallize that feeling. Mm -hmm. And by articulating it and saying it, you've just ruined that sexual attraction, that moment, right? I mean, you're, you know, if Baudrillard is getting a, a fucking lap dance and he's writing about the striptease at the moment he's getting the lap dance, that's like his own way of denying castration, right? That's his own way of not being present in the moment yeah. with his with his uh head in the and the girl's tits you know that that's its own kind of phallic alibi if you will so i think that's part of the awkwardness too yeah is not wanting to articulate those moments where we intensely desire what do you think about i, I want to read this passage because i think this is this is quite interesting you know shifting gears a little bit but i thought those are kind of uh interesting relative to law of the father and even oedipus here this presupposes a type of exchange that has remained outside the dominance of incest prohibition and the law of the father, such as the type of economic and linguistic exchange that we are familiar with, which based on value and culminates in the system of exchange value. This type of exchange exists. It is symbolic exchange, which by contrast is based on the annulment of value and hence cancels the prohibition on which it is based and overcomes the law of the father. Symbolic exchange is neither a regression within the law towards incest, nor a pure and simple transgression, which is always dependent on the law. It is the revolution of this law. This is one of those phrases I remember marking because it's kind of like, you know, if you're a guy who's only ever read Anti-Oedipus and you, you see this, this little paragraph, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm getting some Anti-Oedipus vibes. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is very, but you can see what I'm saying. This is very similar to what we read in chapter three on the question of the relation between the prohibition of incest and, and Baudrillard is very, very good on this point, right? It's not about transgression or regression, right? It's, but he, he, he sounds very much like St. Paul. And the reason why he, he sounds like him is because he doesn't take this point and expand upon it, this notion of a revolution of the law. Mm -hmm. He just kind of leaves it hanging. Yeah. Because we know that's how St. Paul described what, what Jesus was doing, right? He came to fulfill and overturn the Mosaic law. Right. So I do like this notion of symbolic exchange here. I just need to, I need to yeah. suss out what he means by a known yeah, exactly. value. What does that mean, hmm. do you think? If we consider what we read about with Mouse or Claster, specifically Mouse. Yeah, though, right? I mean, the potlatch, station, the, yeah. the potlatch is the only thing I can remotely, but I don't know if that's right, exactly. I don't get what he, what he means by a nulling value, unless he means it in a literal sense of bringing a circle to completion, yeah. right, like the anus. I mean, maybe so, because that's the cyclical nature of the potlatch too, right? I don't know. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Maybe annulment is kind of like the great zero stuff. I think yeah. he's thinking of nulling because what like happens? Null set. What happens when you give me you give me a gift? Mm -hmm. The gift is burning a hole in my pocket because of the <laughs> spirits and all yeah, this yeah. shit, right? And I have to discharge that, right? By not only giving it away but giving you something back, which burns an even greater hole in the pocket. I guess that's my point. And my problem is even in the annulment of the value. Well, I guess you are bringing a circle to completion. If you give and I give back. Yeah, that's the reciprocity. It, we, we've not only closed the loop, but we have to start a new circle, right? Because you have to. Yeah, because now there's a, now there's an, a surplus. 
Yeah, right. There has to be. There's no equivalent. I think that's the ambivalence of symbolic exchange. Why did you give to me in the first place? Because you already felt a surplus of giving, right? And so I have to make I have to give back to you, but I give back to you in a in a way that you can't hold on to that gift forever. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to keep the cycle necessarily. And this is why Mouse himself, but also Nietzsche, those Matri, you know, with Jubilees and with these other forms of debt cancellation that or or even the smaller markets of of limited barter. At some point, though, the circles do have to reset. Yeah. Reset. Yeah. So maybe that's the annulment of value is the whole cycle, not just the one gift. How does the sort of the types of potlatch that are destructive? where they destroy mm. the gifts or they destroy the surplus. They like, kill the slaves. They, right. yeah, they destroy the, the metals. That seems to go more affirmatively in this direction, but I, I don't know how confident I am as far as teasing I mean, that out relative to this. My main thing would be, unless we're talking about the end of the cycle mm-hmm. in the middle of it, when we're talking about the accursed share and the, and the, 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 yeah, the use, yeah. the useless expenditure, uh-huh. You're not annulling value. You're actually accruing it elsewhere. You are accruing like symbolic value, prestige, etc. So, so really, you're talking about a transubstantiation of. I mean, of and value. that's and that's the revolution of value, right? Maybe that's it. Yeah, and Bojer keeps kind of saying like we need to get back this symbolic exchange the, aspect, and the maybe gifts, that's why he feels nostalgic. There's an inequality, or there's a disjunction with the gifts. Yeah, or not a disjunction, but. The fact that my gift has to be more, has to include interest back to you does something. You give back to me that pays me back with interest, pays me back. It's not even the right word, right? Yeah. Different type of value. It's not the surplus value of capital. Right. Yeah, exactly. Symbolic value. It's only analogous to that, but it's not the same. But yeah, you're right. This, This notion of, it always seems like prestige itself demands the interest. Me giving you a next gift, I have to outdo you. Right. It's my honor that demands it. It's not the gift that you gave in itself. It's not even the act. It's my honor within the system. And part of that honor, too, is my recognition of you as... Am I symbolically castrating you through the potlatch, though? I, just, I don't know. I just had that idea. I don't know if that, <sighs> that's my old understanding. Wouldn't the gifts themselves be both the denial and the acknowledgement of our own castration. We're trying to provide these phallic alibis with our exchange and our gifts. We're trying to like cover up the fact that we're castration and that's where our oh, yeah. honor okay. and our prestige uh-huh. gets uh, pledged. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Okay, I like that. Uh, because Mouse himself, Mouse himself says that there's this danger in accepting a gift. And yet what's even worse is to not accept the gift. If you don't accept the gift, boom, you're out of the game. You've proven yourself not to be worthy of gifts. You've proven yourself to be castrated. Mouse himself says there's the danger in accepting the gift, but it's unthinkable not to, right? It's unthinkable not to accept the gift and then pledge oneself into the future to to bring about and tie together the exchange and, and so to speak, quote unquote, outdo the giver. That kind of thing is is why, you know, we, we can think about ancient rituals of like ostracization and, and things like that, right? Shunning. Who, who, who yeah, shunning, <clears throat> things like that. Who is, well, that's a good point too. But, but yeah, who is, um, who is deemed right. castrated, right? Not worthy. Of now, this is something that I, games. this kind of is a larger, way bigger question that I've been really trying to figure out. As that said, 
the system requires whatever system is going to require that sort of other, that sacrifice in a sense, there has to be a shunned. There has to be an outside of us, right? Right. That lacked sort of constitute our own potency or something. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot of great thinkers on this, but the, there's that whole dialectic of inside and outside groups and open and closed societies, et cetera. Yeah. I was talking about it as mechanical and organic solidarity from that's right. From Durkheim pretty heavily, the last uh, discussion on anti Oedipus, because there's an anal- analogy from the the strict hierarchies of the gift economies and these other economies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm still, I would have liked to have seen Baudrillard. If he's going to keep saying, we got to go back to the Island. You know what I mean? Like we got to go back to the Island of symbolic exchange. He needs to start fucking saying how I still <laughs> haven't, you know, that's, I think that's where. Maybe that's I, the last chapter. I can't, it's been a while. The last chapter is a bit, was a bit harder last time I read it. So we'll, well see I, I, I've read the, I've read the last few pages of the book because I cheated <laughs> where he talks, he's talking about this kind of reinvigoration of Marxism and psychoanalysis. I won't say anything about it here, but I'm really looking forward to that because I think he's full of shit, <laughs> <laughs> at least in, on that point where I don't think, I, I think just saying that is a cop out and is like a necessary addendum to the fact that anti-Oedipus at that time in 76 was probably still the fucking hottest thing yeah. around in France. So you can't end the book without having some sort of peripheral dis- discussion of that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Baudrillard is always on the, the edges of, of this stuff anyway, even before anti-Oedipus. He was kind of always interested in, as you, as you know, we, we talked about the mirror production book. He's interested in fetishism fetishism of the sign particularly yeah right i mean this is kind of what part of the chapter is about too but you have a quote here that maybe you want to read or discuss well it's just such a small excerpt but i just thought this was interesting for the body is material of symbolic exchange there is no model no code no ideal type no controlling phantasm since there could not be a system of the body as anti-object and this is, I guess, I remember, I remember the, this. I remember this part. Yeah. This is being the, I guess, the feather in the cap of what symbolic exchange offers over commodity exchange. By the way, it it drives me fucking crazy <laughs> that he translates phantasm with the P. Phantasm as phantasm. Oh, okay, gotcha. Because every case Baudrillard means it's the word fantasy, right? I know why the French use the word phantasm to translate Freud's Freud's German. And it's basically the fact that fantasy seems to be just the thing, whereas phantasm implies the mechanism that produces the thing as well, right? The whole psychical apparatus. apparatus. Yeah, okay. In English, when we see the word phantasm, we think of a fucking ghost. Yeah. We don't think of the word fantasy. That's what Baudrillard's talking about. He's talking about fantasy. So that drives me fucking crazy because we're not all French-pilled, right? So Grant... I got a beef with you. You fucked this up. I'm not exactly sure. So for the body as material of symbolic exchange, there is no model, no code, no ideal type, no controlling fantasy, since there could not be a system of the body as anti-object. The reverse, his critique has been that, I guess, capitalism is, relies on models, code. Yeah. At minimum, I don't know if he has said much about ideal type, Certainly fantasy is well the, the ideal the fetish, right? 
I, right before this, it's the ideal type of the different systems, right? For medicine, it's the corpse. Ah, uh, okay. For yeah. religion, it's the animal. For political economy, it's the robot. For the political economy of the sign, it's the mannequin. So those are kind of the ideal types. And he seems to be implying for a symbolic exchange, the body would be not, none of these, at least not ideally. Right. Yeah, there's no ideal type. This notion of an anti-object is interesting. System of the body as anti-object. Because he says corpse, animal, machine, and mannequin, these are the negative ideal types of the body. The fantastic, and fantastic here, right, fantasy. The fantastic redundant reductions under which it is produced and written into successive systems. So it's the negative ideal types of the body. And I suppose if the body is considered in terms of symbolic exchange, as he says, it's the inverse virtuality of the body, right? It's, it can't be taken as an object. I think that's how I read it. Does that make sense? I like it. I guess that would be the thing, right? Is in the striptease part of the seduction, we already talked about the, the woman becoming closed phallic object by seducing herself, blah, blah, blah. But also she's seducing the viewer, right? I mean, in a good striptease, as he says, the gaze is locked, right? You're not looking at your phone when the girl's doing a good striptease. And so I guess that, that the thing with the striptease, why it's a phallic alibi, whatever, is that even in the end, what is what we are seducing the viewer of is the fact to be taken as an object. That's the fantasy. That's the fantastic reduction. That's part of what you were talking about, right? Being... Yeah, that's exactly uh, seen what I was talking about. And desired as an object. And in symbolic exchange, the striptease would not function. The simulation wouldn't, huh. wouldn't, we'd know where the steak wouldn't even taste like steak, right? Huh. We're back in the gruel. I think that's part of it, right? Again, symbolic exchange. This is partly why, again, he sounds nostalgic. He sounds nihilistic and all this stuff because he still seems to be talking about this not even a utopia or even like a like a paradise it's just like this other world that somehow we're supposed to access and the reason why he sounds nostalgic is that he seems to be implying that oh back in the old day the ancients the primitives they had symbolic exchange and look what we did and fucked it up you know it kind of has that rousseau feel of the bad rousseau yeah the noble savage right you know kind of feel to it even though Rousseau himself is much more complicated than that. But, you know, what I'm saying like there's a way of reading Rousseau. There's a way of reading Baudrillard, I think. And I'm trying not to <laughs> trying not to. Anyway, you got another quote here. Reference to Artaud that I thought was kind of cool. The signs inscribed on the body where the death drive is also tangentially inscribed merely repeat the metaphysical operations of the conscious subject on corporeal material. By beating our skins, we beat metaphysics back into our brains, as Arto said. I would need the context of this Arto quote. I haven't seen it before because I'm not exactly sure you would think you would want to beat metaphysics out of your brain. But maybe back into our brains is this notion that if the mind operates by way of metaphysics and the body works by way of physics, then yeah, I, I suppose that it could be that simple. And I'm just being... Uh, being a fucking nerd about it. But yeah, so what was the other part of that quote? The death drive is also to really repeat the metaphysical operations 
of the conscious subject on corporeal shape. Again, this kind of thing, when he says this without any context, yeah, it's not as impressive as when Deleuze and Guattari like actually bring up like Claster's and the his essay on torture in primitive societies, and like they go through initiation rituals, they talk about why cruelty and marking is important for not just the body, not just for primitive territorial machine, but also for fucking political economy. They go through all of that. And so when he says things like that, that's what I think of, but it's, 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 it's not as impressive, right? I mean, like, sometimes I do wish Baudrillard would, he's got great footnotes. I love his footnotes. Sometimes I wish he would, like, cite some authors. He quoted Artaud, quote unquote, but I always feel like I'm free falling, you know? It's, it is a rush. All right, you got something else? Uh, this was a good quote. This is a footnote, actually. I told you he's got good footnotes. Let's, let's read this one. I love this. That said, the fact that one of the terms of sexual binomialism, the male, although it has become the marked term, and although this is in turn has become the general equivalent in the system, this structure, which to us appears ineluctable, is in fact without biological foundation. Like every great structure, its goal is precisely to break with nature. And he mm-hmm. mentions Livy Strau there. We can't imagine a culture where the terms are reversed, a male striptease and a matriarchal culture all that is required is that the female become the marked term and operate as the general equivalent. We must see, however, that even if these terms are alternated, we must see, however, that even if these terms are alternated, which largely encapsulates women's liberation, the structure remains unchanged, as does the refusal of castration and phallic abstraction. So we can see that the real problem is not whether the system carries within it any possibility for structural alteration, but rather lies in a radical alternative which puts into question the very abstraction of this political economy of sex based on making one of the terms a general equivalent and the misrecognition or reconnaissance of castration and the symbolic economy. There's a lot of stuff going on here. I would say first, he says a lot of fucking words (laughs) to get to the point where he's like, we take it as a given fact that man is the male is the marked term, term, the phallus. Yeah. And biologically. we, 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 yeah, he says a lot of words to basically say because of this biological realism or naturalism. Again, Baudrillard, at least consistently in this chapter, especially, is dogged when he is critiquing this kind of naive, commonsensical realism and naturalism. But we take it as a given that man is, is a marked term and female is is unmarked, or the gets a differently marked. I don't know exactly what you would want to say. But there's no biological foundation for that, right? And there's no there's no symbolic foundation for it, or at least like there's no unavoidable. I love the word ineluctable, but I also don't. <laughs> there's no there's there's no yeah that was uh, a new one for me. There's no unavoidability in it, right? It's not inevitable that things would be this way, right? Yeah, it's and this is where remember when I said to you earlier, I was like, doesn't he mention male striptease for a second? I'd forgotten uh-huh. it was in this footnote. So we can imagine a male striptease. And obviously, even at Bojar's time, this just shows maybe he wasn't around a lot of, he didn't have enough gay friends or something. And in his time, there would have been male strippers, right? So, right. but he's saying that they could become the norm. I think that's what he means. They could become, when we talk about strippers, we still right. normally, we're kind Certainly. of programmed to think of, of women. Exactly. Right. And again, yeah. that goes to that prohibition for women to uh-huh. objectify the male, at least consciously which presupposes that the biological is the determination. 
the woman can't seem to be desiring a man the way that a man is ostensibly presumed to <laughs> to desire a woman. Right. Seemingly. Right. There are obviously exceptions that kind of prove the rule. Yeah. I think of um, my wife loves to tell me this fact that when Elvis started touring, mm-hmm. it may have been his, his agent or somebody, basically somebody, his promoter paid a group of girls. I don't know how large to just scream their heads off wildly. Ooh, that's very interesting. And after that, that became a cultural norm. That became a thing. You didn't have to pay girls to do that. The idea wasn't, let's make this a thing. It was just for this one event, let's make him seem larger than life. But that form of adulation, which had never really been at least a thing in modern times, became contagious. I feel like this is something Guattari would be would love to oh yeah do, right it's, it's kind of like his whole i mean that's almost a model sort of for how some of his praxis works i guess it's almost a case of mass hysteria except it, it's since it's isolated and discontinuous you can't even call it that it just becomes an acceptable form of adulation right an acceptable mass form i mean this all, is where it's contingent too right yes you know it goes to the contingency the importance of contingency in this analysis and for the most part, this was all for males. The hair, the, I think this is why he's one of the most impersonated individuals. That's a, that's a good because, point. Oh, yeah, you know, it's because this phenomenon starts with him, but you see it quickly. Oh, yeah, the Beatles. Like the Beatles, Even for example. Beatlemania. Beatlemania, that's part of it. I don't think you have the same type of phenomenon. Obviously, their music, I mean, I'm not even thinking about abstractly thinking about right. yeah, exactly. the screaming crowds without that becoming an acceptable and even not just acceptable, but a desirable way of behaving, right? For, I mean, obviously today you could, you could see men and women screaming, but you know, in the sixties, when we're talking about uh, all of these cultural shifts that we are and with the musical shifts. Yeah. I mean, like the screaming crowds of women that became an accept, I think, I think part of it too is what we keep getting back to is this question of what is an acceptable form of simulating or expressing desire. Right. For men, it's it's the strip club, right? It's kind of sexist, objectivist shit that we've been talking about. I wonder if the our discussion of anti-Oedipus chapter three, that, okay, so it was the point about how men are never more homosexual. And when they, they arrange are, marriages. Then they arrange marriages. Men are never more homosexual than they are at the strip club. I think that's right. You want to be seen desiring the woman by the yes. other men. Sort of there, there the are idea the, that I'm going with, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's kind of, I don't, I don't know there how, are, whatever. I mean, there are the random lone weirdo guys that go to the strip club by themselves and they're sad yeah. and whatever they have their own reasons and I'm not judging them. But for the most part, when you go to a strip club, you're normally with your bros, right? right. Yeah, exactly. Sa- same with the same with, same with girls, probably especially more for girls, right? When they go to a strip club, they're going with their friends mm-hmm. and to the point where sometimes I just heard about this the other day, these these women would get huge groups and go to this one gay strip club to the point where they they had to be women had to be banned. Right. Because they're taking over the fucking gay strip club. Right. This is not for you. You know what I'm saying? Like these male strippers <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. are not for you, which is just funny because it kind of turns a lot of stuff on its head or at least it kind of confirms what we were talking about because the fact that there aren't there are at least not many but there aren't straight strip clubs with male male dancers that are i mean there's chippendales and stuff like that but you know what i'm saying it's not as profitable of a market 
as it is for sort of prohibition of being yeah women's desire cannot be expressed in that particular way or at least is only it's like very codified still so i mean but chippendales is like mild compared to what you might see at a right at a gay strip club right so this is why the women had to be banned because it's not for you this is not <laughs> this is not your rodeo but you're right there's something there is something eve sedgwick the career theorist i told you about her a little bit last time yeah. I don't know if she coins this term, but she uses it most clearly in my mind, uh, the notion of homosociality that, and Deleuze and Guattari, you know, they already brought up the bisexual model with Proust and obviously from Freud and stuff like that. And so they're talking about that. But with Eve Sedgwick, you could say just as well in the, in that passage you're talking about with the men arranging marriages, that's when they're most homosexual. You know, she would use the term homosocial, that it's like this way of male bonding the bromance and all that shit is a way of sort of warding off homosexuality the bonds of homosociality are meant to ward off the desire the act, of homosexual yeah, yeah gotcha so but i do think you're right i mean like this phenomenon of going to strip clubs you kind of there's also this i think that part of it too is this you don't want to be the weirdo loner guy I think. right again that's funny i don't i never want to go to a strip club yeah yeah the logic of it has no appeal to me. I'm also very weird in that I don't like pornography. Okay. I would rather use my imagination with a real person. I remember there was a very funny... Which is kind of strange, but... There was an unironic, hilarious... It was on like a principal's desk or like a count... It was like a guidance counselor. And he had like a plaque on his desk that yeah. said, real men don't use porn. I need to get you that. I need to get you that plaque. <laughs> Let me complicate this a bit further in that if I, and granted, I don't, I don't know, pornography generally makes me cringe a little bit. There's something, okay, okay. there's something disturbing about it to me, but now if it is amateur porn, that's more libidinally and charging for me. There's an aura around amateur porn, right? Right. Like, I don't know. There's, there's an aura of, I got a peek into a, a world that's supposed to be private. Right. You know what I mean? There's like a difference between this. Uh, maybe it's just a perceptual thing, right? Of the If the woman isn't really enjoying the, the sex and the porn, then I can't enjoy it. If I can tell that it's so just- you're the, a, hysteric, you're the hysterical <laughs> subject, right? You have to, uh, your desire is contingent upon identifying with the other. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, <laughs> I'm not criticizing you. I just think that's that's great. For me, I like porn in two situations. One- if I have somewhere to be, I have to get up and go <laughs> and like, and I just need it done. I can, it'll, it'll take 10 times less amount of time. Yeah. If I have porn that I can just, boom, just get it done. You know, I'm not, not trying to like feel myself for days, you know? Yeah, I mean? And see, that's what I run into is I can't find when it comes to porn, it takes forever to find one that has the right. Ah, uh, you're like, playing gen- fucking menu game, man. You can't <laughs> be playing menu game porn. Just but put I can't. On and just, I, ah. But I. That's the yeah, thing, though. Is I, got I, I, can't, got I can't get libidinally invested in pornography oh. if it, unless there is a genuine pleasure that is not spectacle or isn't consciously aware. This is why Freud says that fetishes are not even perversions in the sense in which he thinks of it. That that also that a fetishist would not say, please take this away from me, that there's something expedient about the fetish, right? So maybe we just need to get you a, a fetish. You just need to find your genre. We need to find your genre for <laughs> and you'll, you'll be good. I don't know. I think my, my fetish is to be- Raw-dogging it? 
<laughs> using using the using the imaginary cap, it's respectable. If I'm masturbating, I generally think of an actual person that I'm attracted to, or that's, situ- that's, yeah, or like a situation that yeah, there, there's a libidinal appeal for. That's respectable. I think it is. If I will masturbate and and like to orgasm with pornography afterwards, I feel it's a negative. Almost like that kind of Catholic guilt feeling, but not because uh, yeah, I'm not Catholic. Yeah. But it's that, that I wonder post, if it's post nut clarity is 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 but, doom and Yeah, gloom. I wonder if there's something about even you know coming from a evangelical background of yeah. denying one's uh, I don't know, but yeah, it's I don't have that negative feeling whenever I masturbate without the aid of pornography. Ah, okay. So it's the porn that's that's prohibited, right? Yeah, I think for me. A lot Which of is times, funny because I want to be objectified, but if I see someone being objectified purely, well, that, that, then that's it's, counter. That's <laughs> counter to your to your uh, to to your fantasy, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's it's like it's like waves collapsing that are canceled that are mirror image. Out, yeah. yeah, they cancel out. Uh, you know, for me, a lot of times I just, especially like early in the morning, I wake up. Oh yeah, I'm it, always. It just, yeah, it just won't go down, and I'm like, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. The body yeah. is fucking weird. I'm just tired of it being up. I'm tired of it just begging for attention so i just right and the porn is just like i know it'll take it'll take just a few minutes boom get it done don't think about it because that's all i want i just want it to go away just stop stop yeah. being the other time where i think porn is nice is if you're really gonna dedicate some some fun time with the significant other and they get some porn that arouses them that you know will work for both of y'all yeah two birds one stone and that gets that gets her enticed i mean that's that's when I'll actually have porn like on for for an extended period of time. And I'm not just trying to like, you know, get, go away because yeah. that's really what it's about. A lot of times when I masturbate now, it's mainly that's just that. Just go the fuck away. Stop it. Oppressive desire. Yeah. It's my penis thinks like, hey, are we going to hang out and have fun today? I'm like, go. Stop. No. <laughs> You're gross. So, yeah, you have another quote here that might fit in perfectly. I think so. If not to our little diversion there about our own masturbatory habits, I, I think I that mean, <laughs> that's what these that's what people tune in for. Right. right. They want to hear. It is kind of funny. <laughs> I don't like pornography. I, re- I literally I really don't. No one's going like... to judge you for that. No one's going to like <laughs> I mean, no one's going to like judge you poorly for that, at least. Some guys might be like, dude, what? But right. Or at least like 12, 12 year old, 12 year old me is very disappointed in you. I, just you know, that. I wonder if it even 12 year old me is like, dude, how this is have, the best thing. I've got an anecdote for you. I, you. I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about, I forget which episode it was, but we were talking about relating the story to seeing a woman's naked body, like in Playboy as a youth, as like seven, uh-huh. or like okay. in that range and being kind of, again, being kind of like, that's gross. <laughs> like it's disgusting looking. There's something repulsive about it at that age. And I oh, wonder, yeah, seven, eight, seven, eight. No doubt. I agree. You're but curious, yeah, but it is. Yeah, you. you're curious, but like, yeah, it's kind of off-putting as far as, because it's kind of, I know consciously I'm supposed to desire this, but, and like, there is the, the prohibition of under 18 or whatever, right? You can't buy yeah, it. Yeah, right? that's, yeah. You're not supposed to look at porn. At that age, you know that, it, that it's wrong. Yeah. Right. You're not supposed to look at it until you're an adult or whatever. So. Also, you the woman's castrated and that's got to be one of those things, right? You, know, you, you see the castrated woman and you're, you're yeah. like, I, I like it, but I don't. Oh. Right. The physical image of the vagina, not very appealing at that age, at least. Yeah. Sex organs are, they're weird. The genitals are weird. Now that would be a different case, but um, yeah, I'll go, I'll go and read this passage. No, it's cool, man. As you said, it kind of depends on the context though. Cause like if you're out at the public pool or whatever, and you're just seeing tits and vaginas out in, in the wild, that is kind of, 
you're not ready for that shit, right? You're like, come on. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, I'm trying to mediate my own little libidinal band by like, yeah. I, I want to maintain a certain control over what I'm allowing to libidinally chart or like, I'm keeping my desire, my cards close as far as right. desire goes. I'm not just, I'm not going to show my cards. I mean, it's the same, but with like um, on Twitter, you know, some of my friends have private accounts and I had to unfollow a few of those private accounts because they just putting up dicks and balls and anuses and sex yeah. acts, car- a lot of cartoons and stuff. And I'm just like, man, come on, man. I'm just scrolling here. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Come I mean, on. I de- that's another thing is I definitely don't like to see nudity on the timeline, even someone that I find attractive. Oh, totally. Because I don't want to invite the the desire. Is that a warding off of castration? Maybe, but it's but it's also a warding off of just hey, not everybody got time for that all the time, you know. I especially think that since we're in our thirties, you know, full disclosure, <laughs> a little bit older now, we we've had our horny threes and shit. And when you're younger, when you're a little kid, you're like, oh fuck yeah, porn. And when you're when you're our age, it's like, dude, come on, man. I, I want to seek this out when I'm ready, but if I'm just kind of, if I'm just scrolling, if I'm just mind my own business and got fucking pussy on the timeline and it, shit like that, like, come on. I'm already producing so much desire yeah, on my right. own yeah. that I, I can't even modulate the desire that I'm producing with my own internal fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. to have additional external fantasies as well as just, it's too much. I can't. I can't take it. Then it's, it, there's a frustration because there's, I don't want any of I that think, shit. I think the like, problem is you actually need to be castrated. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. You're not even, it's not even about denying castration. So it's I, like, I need to transition is what you're saying. Yeah. It, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the pillar and the stones just stem and Okay. Quote. This looks like a good quote. The erotic privilege of the female body works for women just as much as for men. In fact, a single perverse structure allows for everyone centered on the denial of castration. It works with the female body as with the imminence of castration. Thus, the logical progression of the system, here once again homologous to political economy, leads to erotic recrudescence of the female body because it best lends itself to the phallic general equivalence being deprived of a penis. The male body is not subject to the same erotic return, far from it, because it permits neither the fascinating reminder of castration nor the spectacle of constantly overcoming it. It can never really become a smooth, closed, and perfect object since it is stamped with the true mark, the one the general system valorizes, and in consequence is less susceptible to demarcation to this long task of phallic formation. Of course, it is by no means certain that one day it too may be actualized as a phallic variation. We're approaching a new order where there's no erectile advertising nor any erectile nudity it is at this cost that there can be a controlled transfer. Yeah, this is interesting. This point, again, I don't think he has enough gay friends, but this questionable <laughs> but interesting point about how the male body, it's too close to the reminder of cash ratio or the lack thereof, right? It's the fact that the female body is far enough away that there is this slow burn, like in the striptease of the uh, overcoming and reminder of castration. I think that's interesting. I'm not sure if I agree with it, but I think it's interesting. But his footnote is really good where he says, and this is the footnote about the woman's body and the the eminence of castration. If the line of the stocking is more erotic than the shawl covering the eye or the line of the glove on the arm, it is not due to the promiscuity of the genitals, 
It is simply because castration is played out and denied here at close range, as near as possible, and in the greatest possible eminence. Thus, in Freud, it is the last perceived object, the closest to the discovery of the absence of the penis in women that will become the fetish object. I brought that up earlier, right? You know, about the that last thing you see that for Freud, it kind of like freezes in your mind and is almost like this protective layer of the fact of castration, right? It's it's not the promiscuity of the genitals, it's the the proximity of the genitals to the stocking that leads it to be fetishized. What do you think about this in context of have a picture up of of what is it, what is it, the Jobov? Yeah, we talked about co- this uh, last yeah. chapter, right? Yeah, which would cover all but presumably the eyes. The eyes. Yeah. And, right. Isn't there something I almost feel like Baudrillard would be quasi nostalgic for this in a sense, or like I'm just yeah, trying to think I, of the, yeah. the like the libidinal or like the sort of apparatus of libidinal repression or I don't know. It's just like, how does this work relative? You know what I mean? Because this is kind of like brings into relief sexual liberation as not necessarily yeah. being li- emancipatory. See, I, I, on its own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, because, you know, I'm a Western white man, I don't want to necessarily say too much about this right, yeah, again. But, but I still, I don't know. It's I at least interesting with, to bring with up. Yeah. Baudrillard, I will at least give him the benefit of the doubt and say that what he would find in this would be a kind of valorization of a, a certain male patriarchal supremacy, whatever. And that that I think that kind of reactionary move in the other direction, I don't think he would necessarily support. But the question about if you abstract from the cultural mm-hmm. and you and you merely talk about it, which is impossible, obviously. But if you merely yeah. talk about this question of the veiling of the body, it reminds me of what William Blake says, right? That prisons were built by stones of law, brothels by bricks of religion. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's this yeah. qu- it's this this thing where it's like seemingly you're warding off the desire by fully clothing the body. Yeah. But at the same time, it seems like you're also like heightening it. Right. It is that kind of edging relation to that prohibition of. Yeah. To give this example. Okay. So, you know, I was talking about like in the the winter, whenever women are wearing sweaters or whatever. Right. And there's more is left to the imagination. It's almost the same thing. If you could just see the eyes and the eyes are particularly alluring, right. That could be, even a woman who's not displaying any of her body whatsoever, but just the eyes, yeah, yeah, that would be enough to, if there's something about the eyes that you sort of project a fantasy upon. Sure. Yeah, of course. And they are, the eyes are the locus of the other, right? When yeah. we locate another person, another subjectivity, when we get outside of our solipsism, yeah. I mean, eyes are the, the gateway to the soul, et cetera. For me, it's almost like there's, there can be something very alluring or desirable or about the kind of what's underneath. Sure. Yeah. And, and as you said, it's, it's part of your, uh, part of that imagination that, that you're right. But now not to say that I don't find a woman in a bikini or whatever to, that can also be, of course, yeah. not to like dismiss that. Cause definitely no, no, yeah. that's, that's a thing for me too. Right. Even though I sort of will lean towards, it's not a, it's not always the case. Right. It's the different relations to, to nudity and semi nudity that. Right. Baudrillard is talking about and that you're discussing. I mean, all of that's, that's relevant. The ubiquity of phrases such as almost naked, naked without being naked, as if you were naked, 
and the tights in which you are more naked than is natural. Yeah, no, that's the that's hyper ass. Yeah, that's the hyper ass paragraph. <laughs> it is interesting that I think about my wife. She has she has very large breasts, and so when she gets a bra, most of the time it's like functional first. But in almost every other case, because it's uncomfortable, obviously to to hide the puppies. In almost every other case, though, in almost every other form of life, I know for her function is secondary is secondary to like cuteness she's all about everything being cute and and she won't necessarily sacrifice function for cute but she's going to find something that's functional that is cute yeah uh so when she when she can find a bra that's both cute right obviously makes her boobs look good too that's part of it but is functional as well that's like a home run and those those are very rare for her so just thinking about this question of of functionality that Baudrillard is, is talking about specifically in this chapter, but but elsewhere too, this notion of whether you call it use value or or whatnot. But when things get reduced to their functionality alone, that this is for him when the structure and the code becomes ascendant, right? And when, yeah. that that's when that's the, when and you can say that about capitalism too. Now right? Tinder, Tinder, Bumble, etc. the swiping apps are all about that. About what the functionality or yeah, the functionality being the binary, like will fuck, won't fuck gotcha. you yeah, know, yeah. at its most yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in I your got, face. I right. I got that. I got that. No, that, that's that's a good point. I mean, well, I it's you, literally yeah. the, the functionality of the male member. Right. Then, right. Yeah. At least exactly. for us males. I mean, yeah. Women can swipe left and right too, but you know, um, that's kind of castration, if you will, or an overcoming it. Yeah. What did ahead. you think though about this mention? He okay, we may be approaching a new order where there is no erectile advertising nor any erectile nudity yeah maybe should look up the rest of that quote no i mean i think it makes sense curious what he's talking about this notion that it's very possible that at some point this play of the woman's body is being the focal point of becoming the phallic alibi and object and this overcoming of castration you know this coming close to the limit yet pushing it off which is exactly how Dulles and Guattari themselves talk about capitalism and its own limits, right? It's always coming up against its limits and then like extending them and yeah, pushing them back. Right. And it's the same thing with that. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like, I think for Baudrillard, he's kind of pointing to this fact that it seems like an antiquated or anachronistic phenomenon to still kind of remain tethered to, to the mark, to the phallic imaginary, if you will. Or, I mean, obviously... That's not a good point because the imaginary and the symbolic dimensions are both at play here in the Lacanian terms of the phallus, right? And so I think he's kind of hypothesizing that at a certain point, this is like a part of a bygone era. I, I don't know. I mean, Zizek would, would jump in here and talk about decaffeinated Coke and uh, decaf coffee, the sort of placebo effects that we kind of seek out you know, in order to like, you're, you're getting close to the real, you're getting the real, but it's not the, it's not the bad stuff or it's not the. Tastes more like regular Dr. Pepper. Yeah. This whole ideology of like getting close to the real or getting the real thing without the. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Yeah. I didn't sniff enough to make that (laughs) intelligible, but, but I think that, I think that Baudrillard's talking a little bit about that, right. That the, the phallic advertising, you could see it in like the evolution of the automobile. You think of what do you call it? 
what's the emblems that's in the front of the car? You, you don't see them anymore, really. Hood they ornaments, be, yeah. Yeah, the hood ornaments, very phallic, right? And part of that was a way of advertising and branding and all that shit. You don't see that anymore. Yeah, not so much, or at least not in the same way, a hood no. ornament. Now, you still have the branding. Yes, yes, you do. Yeah, but yeah, I just meant the, the, the phallic aspect. Right, right, yeah, the extra, yeah, okay. Which in the imaginary sense, in the imaginary sense. Baudrillard yeah, might right. be talking more of the symbolic, but I, I, yeah, I, gotcha. I think you can at least... It's easier to grasp on the imaginary level. This is kind of going back a bit, but I still want to read this because it, it goes more to the hyper too. <laughs> the James Bond film Goldfinger provides a perfect example of this. In it, a woman is painted gold. All her orifices are blocked up in a radical makeup, making her body a flawless phallus. That the makeup should be gold only emphasizes the homology with political economy, which of course amounts to death. The nude, gold-varnished playgirl will die by having incarnated to an absurd extent the phantasm of the erotic. But this is the case for every skin and functional aesthetics in the mass culture of the body, body-hugging tights, girdles, stockings, gloves, dresses, and clothes, not to mention suntans that lay a motif of the second skin and the transparent pellicle always come to vitrify the body. What is vitrification? Cooling of liquid medium in the absence of ice crystal formation. You could think about the just the skin flash of flash freezing or something. Yeah, I mean, just the skin of the gold painted girl. That's always talking about in terms of vitrification. That that weird gloss. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because there it's done so quickly. Okay, the body. Yeah, so that's that's part of the body hugging too, right? You can imagine like the. This is even better. That's than the that. hyper ass in the yoga, right? That's the, it's like the ass is vitrified and like, right. Know. Exactly. It's like, that's why it becomes phallic as he kind of says, right. It's the uh, self-enclosed. Yeah. Know, it's yeah. Like this yeah. Perfect form. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, I mean, you kind of took the words out of my mouth a little bit because I was just going to go towards how it was even a more intense example of how, of the hyper ass, because like, yes, it's not yeah. even a garment, it's paint, which is there's a, yeah, there's yeah. a the intimacy is far more direct with this paint i think that's why the girl has to die though at least symbolically as yeah. he says right it's it's you know she's it's like she's made into a doll right it is the mannequin stuff right it's, yeah but yeah but obviously she is wearing underwear too but yeah but i mean it's it's in the fantasy she's not yeah in our fantasy as as the spectator we're not supposed to see the it's kind of like hash ratio right we're we're supposed to see her naked and yet she we're supposed to know she's not because of our modesty and all this. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of the vitrification, you know, she's, she is made into a doll, into a mannequin kind of, right. It's, this is, I was thinking about this last night we were watching the Adams family and I thought like, if we had world enough in time, you and I would be able to talk about the Adams family and the death drive. Interesting. Because precisely insofar as the Adams family, they are immune to death or can sort of cross that boundary, that physical, biological, metaphysical boundary of death. It doesn't work for them in the same way, right? They can have their heads cut off and whatever and just, you know, it doesn't, doesn't phase them. That kind of absence of the death drive in the Adams family is has all kinds of implications. And that's partly why they have to be so close to death too, right? In terms of their kind of Gothic upbringing. It doesn't seem that they are immortal though, at least in terms of the lore, but they, but they at least 
can't be killed in any normal fashion and can't right. necessarily die in any normal fashion. And this is why I think they surround themselves with, with death, at least the imaginary aspect of, of death. So, oh, they're, so they're Gothic, yeah. if you will. Right. And, and, or they're goth, you could even say, but, um, but yeah, I would, and so I was thinking kind of about the same way with, this is why for Baudrillard, the male body ideally can't be, who knows about today, right? I mean, he's writing a 76, but we can imagine like, this is why the male body doesn't work as well as the female body in terms of the striptease, in terms of the, it's too close to castration or the reminder of its absence. Whereas the female body as the unmarked blah, 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 it's, you know, they are, they're like, cat, they're like death castrated. You know what I mean? They can't die, so to speak. So yeah. they lack the means by which to, See, that's why I was, yeah. that kind of makes sense. Like, you know how I was talking about how my conception of castration kind of is the thwarting of desire. Mm -hmm. So in that way, their desire for death is thwarted by, right? Yeah. By, by just the, the fictional parameters of the story. Right, yeah. But yeah. Okay. But the function is the same. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is the same. They're, I think in a certain way, they do intensely desire death, even though they obviously enjoy living yeah. but it's an but it's obviously with that interesting slant right but and this is also why they can be weird and have to be weird yeah but you can even kind of reverse like you said though you can kind of reverse that to like not a desire for death but a warding off of death by being mm. right like by by living it out by living it out constantly yeah sort of like or sort of yeah yeah yeah, sort of, yeah sort of like in your projecting death to ward it off as like an anxiety or something yeah yeah no that's good i, I like that precisely because you could say it's it's not a desire for death, as you said, but it's it's this warding off. But I think a part of it is in the Lacanian sense and the Baudrillardian sense, it does seem like that they're connected, right? This, yeah. Uh, the warding off, right? And the the revealing and the the unveiling and the veiling. Yeah, it just uh, kind of depends on which thinker you're looking <laughs> looking through this through. Which which syllable you emphasize? You yeah. put the emphasis on. It, um, man, I saw something actually. I think it was in this book where they misspelled emphasis or emphasis and i thought of you awesome yeah i was like oh this is a editing error which i never catch maybe it was in the other book that i'm reading actually did it spell it with a with an f or something ah, i'd have to look at it but it, it was misspelled anyway yeah, I, thought, I, I immediately thought of you i was like oh this is something taylor would catch i go i go fucking crazy about <laughs> that shit but uh because well, i like never a, look at i never I was, notice i was talking to you about the little circumflex or not the circumflex but the I don't even know what it's called. The fucking tail on the sea that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Within like Garçon. Yeah. And Francois. All right. Uh, let's do this. Maybe this last quote. Yeah. And, yeah and, I was going to wrap up. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. <clears throat> For the Indian bodies gaze at each other and exchange all their signs. These signs are consumed in an incessant relaying and refer neither to the trip. These signs are consumed in an incessant relaying and refer neither to a transcendental law of value nor to a private appropriation of the subject. For us, the body is sealed in signs, increasing its value through a calculus of signs that it exchanges under the law of equivalence and reproduction of the subject. The subject is no longer eliminated in the exchange. It speculates. The subject, not the savage, is enmeshed in fetishism. Through the investment of its body, it is the subject that is fetishized by the law of value. You know, um, the notion of fetish that Freud develops is, and I'm not sure 
where Marx uh, really relates it to. I know the word had existed, the notion of fetishism had existed for a long time, but it basically is kind of an ethnocentric depiction of ancient civilization, of primitive civilization, Mm -hmm. right? That fetishes are the monkey paw or whatever the fuck, right? Or the, the shrunken heads, you know, these little, you can call them keepsakes that either contain or ward off spirits and blah, blah, blah. As I said, it's kind of ethnocentric, but that's the general idea, right? That it's based off of. And this is, I think, why he says what he says here. It's not the, it's not the savage, it's not the primitive that's, that's enmeshed in fetishism. I mean, partly too, I think is precisely like we were saying with castration, with death, et cetera. You know, if you have, literal fetishes externalized and, and outside like little totems and things like this uh then you ward off fetishism right or you contain it whereas we've generalized it throughout throughout the play of signs oh, interesting. because of the bojir i probably wouldn't argue with this but i'll say it in terms of the listen guattari it's precisely with the the onset of the reign of the abstract equivalence of money mm-hmm. that I mean, that's a symptom. It's not necessarily the cause. That's like a, you know what I mean? That's, that's quasi-cause. a quasi cause. You could call it a quasi cause. You could call it, I mean, that's what they will say about the body of capital, you know, that it's, it's the general equivalence and the, the abstract equivalence. I'm wondering about Baudrillard's way of, I mean, what I want to ask Baudrillard and just to kind of wrap up what we we're saying and what I guess we've been saying for four chapters now is like, what I want to kind of ask Baudrillard is how do we, is there a possibility for like carving out spaces of symbolic exchange, ambivalence, whatever he would want to call it? Is that, or is that just something that's inevitable? Is that, is that a part of, he even said he had this kind of crazy line. Cause I want to ask about this too, or at least keep thinking about it for next time. When he said, uh, every future revolution must take account of what, it's about repression and transgression of the law, right? It's mm-hmm. every future revolution has to take this into account. It's uh, it's the Freud Marx stuff, you know, about fetishism, castration, blah, blah, blah. I want some concrete stuff. And I don't think Baudrillard is going to give it to me. It's kind of like liberal economy. You know, I, I kept wanting Leotard to like be concrete and give prescriptions and take stands. And I don't really think that's what he does it sometimes just enough to like string us along. But like he, he's, we invent nothing you know, yes, 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 <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think the Bojer is kind of, this is kind of why I brought up the sophist, that he is doing a kind of very calculated, sophisticated and sophistical experiment or monologue, right? He, he is trying to, in order to articulate the equivalency of, of the sign of the political economy of the sign of the liberal economy of the sign, I guess one has to be also equivocal oneself, right? One has to get to play on that terrain. I want to see some of the map sketched out. Hopefully we'll, we'll learn more. I keep saying this every chapter. Hopefully, hopefully next chapter I'll stop tickling our taint, stop stripteasing. What do you make of this bracketed term? I can't even pronounce it exactly. The, the fair valois? Yeah. I mean, literally it's fair is make do, but it's the most used verb. It comes in all sorts of combinations. And, and then Valois is, is value. I haven't seen it translated as, what is it great translated as? Investment? Yeah. Literally, it's it means- Subject you, not savage is enmeshed in fetishism. Through the investment of its body, it is the subject that is fetishized by the law of value. See, what I have here in Wiktionary is fair Valois is a sidekick, a foil, a stooge. 
And then Fervalwa Kamik is the straight man, right? Like in a comedic duo. Comedy, yeah. But also it means comic relief. So, but the phrase Fervalwa without a hyphen is to assert or to affirm. But Baudrillard is obviously, and he doesn't do this a lot, so I'm not going to fault him, but he's obviously playing off of the, the etymology of, of value or, or the notion of value, but also this, this notion of through the investment of its body is, you wouldn't say it, I don't know if you would say the foil of its body or the sidekick or the stooge. So I do think you have to kind of take Baudrillard literally when he says Fairval here. The subject is the stooge for the fetish? Through the investment of its body, it is the subject that is fetish. Almost like the law of value moving you. Yeah, and precisely insofar as the body is, quote unquote, the source of, is what's caught up in making value. We could say yeah. like in labor power, right? Mm-hmm. I honestly think it's probably not too much more complicated than, than just playing on words. Okay. All right. Well, I think that uh, puts a nice bow, if you will, on today's conversation. So this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. See y'all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work orange.